I'm Alan, and my pronouns are they, them. I'm Kaylee, and my pronouns are she, her. And my name is Danielle. My pronouns are she, her, and you are listening to Target Snark It, a weekly podcast from Broad Digital Consulting. back to another episode of Target Snarket, a weekly podcast by Broad Digital Consulting. We hope that your Tuesday is more than marginal. I'm one of your hosts with the dad glasses and dad jokes, Danielle. I'm Kaylee, your gateway to the Midwest. And I'm Alan. I look this haggard every week because I'm the project manager of Broad Digital. I like how you turned it around for yourself there. That was good. You made it a brand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you turned you turned the Haggard into a brand. Like you're getting you a lot better so at marketing. Well. <laughs> no, but I work for a marketing thing. <laughs> Did you say a marketing thing? Yeah. A consultant. Yeah. Wow. Like a marketing thing. Yeah. <laughs> Couldn't even be a company. Jesus Christ. Our new t-shirts. Uh, <laughs> a marketing thing. Work for a marketing thing. Uh, we are excited to be back. We are so excited to have Kaylee back from surfing. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we are here joined today by a very special guest, Leah Scott. Leah has worked in nonprofit communications for much of her career. She currently works in reproductive health, reproductive rights, reproductive justice, which given the current climate of abortion rights and reproductive rights in this country as of late, and, you know, I guess kind of always, uh, <laughs> this gives her a really interesting point of view on communications, on marketing in the social justice and mission driven spaces. So welcome, Leah. Anything you want to add? Yeah, thanks, Danielle. I'm really glad to be here. I don't really know that I have too much to add. I think that really covered the the whole scope of my background. So thank you for such a good intro. Fantastic. Your entire Fantastic. life. My entire, entire life. life. <laughs> <laughs> really I don't know if we wrote that or if you did, but I was like, <laughs> if you're thanking me for reading what you wrote, like that's like, thank you for giving that credit, passing it along. Uh we're all about sharing that, you know, here, here at, here at broad, here at the marketing thing, we all do. Uh, <laughs> starting off salty. All right. All right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, this week, uh, we want to talk about something that is, uh, as, as I mentioned in the intro, really timely now, but sort of always timely and relevant, uh, at least in our lifetime, you know, as far as like the fight for uh, reproductive rights and reproductive justice, I can't think of a time in my, uh, you know, consciousness where it wasn't at least like on the table at stake, right? Like I, even though, uh, you know, Roe Ro v. Wade, <laughs> Rodeo Wade, no Rodeo. Roe v. Wade. <laughs> Sorry, uh, it was was uh, you know passed down many many decades ago. Uh, it has always felt like it was something that was up for grabs. I've never once felt as though uh, it was safe. Like we're totally no. okay with this. You know, uh, we had what are the 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 trigger laws? Is that what they are? That like as soon as Roe v. Wade was uh, struck down, there were lots of states that immediately reproductive rights 
gone. And there were so, so many challenges to them uh, in the years leading up to that. And some of them failed, but I feel like, and and I'm sure that I'm not alone in this, uh, I feel like the the constant challenges were just like little by little erosion of the the right uh, to an abortion, of the of reproductive rights in general, um, you know, because even when Roe v. Wade was still the law of the land, uh, and we theoretically had reproductive rights that were protected, uh, as more and more states started to limit those rights and what they could do and and who could do what, you essentially start to take the rights away, right? Like, I mean, if you've only if you can only have one clinic in uh you know a 300 mile radius you've sort of eliminated that right for a lot of people like theoretically they've got it but i i think that constant erosion um and then uh i don't think to anybody's surprise but definitely to uh many uh, for many of us our, our devastation uh that was overturned uh last summer a little over a year ago so um we're really excited to have leah join us because this is an important topic to us here at broad digital uh who are all concerned about reproductive rights here in our organization and also us as people who assist nonprofits and organizations and brands with uh, not just marketing and positioning and brand messaging, but also having these conversations. How are brands going to come down on the side of, uh, you know, a particular group in in any sort of um, uh, political dynamic, if you will. So there are a few questions that we want to talk about today, you know, in, in reproductive communications, which I know that, that Leah can speak to, and also just like social justice, mission-driven comms in general, how do we maintain authentic, sincere messaging when in a time of crisis, especially given that, you know, crises in the U.S. and not just SCOTUS cases that throw into crisis, but really ongoing crises. They're, they're just ubiquitous. They're constant here. And I know that it's something that we've talked about in the past, like at what point in time are crises just so uh, numerous that it's not even worth interrupting your daily like brand messaging over? Um, how do you decide how to respond to things without appearing disingenuous or performative? How do you decide what type of cri- crisis warrants a statement or response. Uh, Leah thinks here that that uh, ethos obviously plays a huge part, but uh, so does strategy. And so we're excited to, to be able to talk to her today. Um, so I think first and foremost, before we jump into the meat of things, I want to clear one thing up. Because like we here at Broad Digital, we are marketers. We work for a marketing thing. And uh, Alan, you didn't you didn't even respond to that. Wow. Well, I'm like, sorry. I was not. <laughs> they were like, "Yeah, we do work for the marketing." Unbelievable. Thing. Yeah, <laughs> we work for a marketing thing. I, what of it? <laughs> I have podcast anxiety, so it's kind of looking ahead to be like, "Okay, do I have to talk sometime?" And so then <laughs> I missed my opportunity to talk. Um, but funny. <laughs> Good job. 
Thanks, friend. Uh, so uh, we're, we're marketers, you know, uh, in terms of the difference between marketing and comms, like I know that like we've helped clients with comms before, both communications to customers as well as internal communications and, you know, how to get messages across quickly. But the way that I understand it, and I, I hope that like, please, A, correct me if I'm wrong, and B, expand on it, educate us on the difference between comms and marketing. But the way I understand it is like, Communications is like all the things that you can say to prospects, customers, or even your own internal teams that aren't necessarily trying to sell anything. <laughs> like there is no like bait moment. Um, but yeah, can you can you break that down for us a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you've hit the nail right on the head as far as I understand kind of the Venn diagram of marketing and comms. Like I think I've always thought of marketing as, you know, the ultimate outcome is to sell a product. And with communications, it's more about like promoting an idea or like um, a message. Um, and so I think when I think communications, I think more like politics, nonprofits. Um, I think kind of part of the the nexus, one of the nexus points between the two, like in the center of that Venn diagram in the nonprofit space anyway, and I guess with politics too, is, is fundraising. Like I think that's obviously different than selling a product, but you're still trying to appeal to donors, to funders, to generate revenue, although it looks different and serves a different purpose. So yeah, I would say that that's like one point of overlap. And I really quickly too, just want to thank you for, for highlighting all of those different pieces, like the, you know, the Roe v. Wade piece and just kind of, I don't know, all of these different elements of, of ReproComs. I'm just excited to kind of <laughs> dive into all those different layers. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Thank you for that. So I'm in charge of the meat and potatoes here. Uh, for all of us, all of us here at the marketing thing, it seems like every day is a crisis, uh, but sometimes mm. we forget that there are actual like big crises. Actually thinking back on it, for example, Danielle, while we run social media, we used to be kind of in charge of whether or not messaging would be going out after a mass shooting or something of that nature. And even now, we haven't been posting that much because it's so constant. Um, it's mm -hmm. really sad to say out loud that that's like the case right now. Yeah. Um, and quickly, even we've forgotten that only we've only been in an office space for some, not us, <laughs> for three to two years and since there was a huge pandemic where we literally shut down the world. So in your experience with communications, how do you think a business or brand uh, can maintain that authentic, sincere messaging, whether it's going dark on a page, whether it's just discussing, hey, we're in a pandemic? How does a business or brand maintain that authentic messaging when a crisis, especially in the U.S., is happening or constant in that example? Totally. Yeah. I mean, I'd be really interested in hearing your thoughts as marketers mm -hmm. um, about like businesses and brands specifically. I mean, I think one of the first things that comes to mind is really just sort of like walking the walk in order to accurately talk the talk. Like I think it's usually pretty clear when, when a brand is sort of performatively addressing a crisis or doing so because, you know, they feel like they have to versus actually like um, in their sort of strategy, their operations, their sort of everyday way of moving through the world, like addressing the sort of, whether it's inequity or, you know, gun violence, like whatever the issue is. Mm -hmm. um, 
I think walking the walk first and foremost is really important. And so when I think about like nonprofit communications in this context, like one thing that comes to mind too is kind of responding to things that are sort of within your own wheelhouse. Like I, that's also kind of a, a blurry category because things like gun violence affect all of us and don't just fall under sort of one category or one silo. Um, and this is also making me think about reproductive justice, which um, kind of touches every different like aspect of life. Um, reproductive justice is a movement that was started by Black women. Um, it's, you know, the right for we the right for us to choose to have children to not choose to have children and to raise the children we do have in safe and sustainable communities so that kind of encompasses everything from climate to gun violence to access to reproductive health care and so me sort of working at an organization that is not necessarily a reproductive justice organization but that does our work through a reproductive justice framework um it kind of opens up a lot of doors for us to engage with a wide variety of crises because that sort of falls within our wheelhouse. And so I think um, kind of just staying true to whatever your organizational mission is, but perhaps finding ways that that can apply to different things that sort of come to the forefront can be helpful. So that's interesting. You're saying kind of you decide on what needs to be communicated, whether to customer or to everyone, for your instance, um, based off if it kind of touches everyone's lives and I mean, Danielle, I feel like it's just marketing. It's always to save face, which is at the end of the day to make sales. I like, what would your, your experience be? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's, it's funny, Leah, when you talk about like things that, that seem to align with your business, with your brand, uh, but that things like gun violence impact, you know, all of us, uh, I, I have to, I think back to, um, Kaylee and I were working together in a different context at this time, um, but uh, at in the context in which we were working together, it was uh, for a a social media thing, and uh, <laughs> there you go. Um, trying to bring some levity before the gravity of this example right. too. Yeah. Uh, but uh, we were working for a social media thing, and uh, with this social media thing, I was in charge of a nonprofit client that uh, specialized in, or the nonprofit rather was um, a very specific disability, and I can't name it without naming the whole nonprofit, but it, it was uh, a nonprofit that was centered around uh, research and support of the community of, of disabled people that they, um, they supported. And when the Pulse nightclub shooting happened, I don't know if you all recall that it happened uh, over a weekend. It happened on a, mm-hmm. on a Saturday night. Um, you know, we all woke up Sunday morning to the news and, uh, we, of course, you know, at this social media thing, were trained to, if there was a crisis of any kind, a, a, you know, a national level crisis that we would reach out to all of our clients. We would let them know, Hey, we are recommending that we are pulling all of our social posts for the day. We're stopping our ads for the day. Um, we're doing all of this. And then if needed, we would help them to craft a statement. And when I say if needed, I mean 
four organizations that were uh, maybe in the same industry, inside of the same community, in the same space in some capacity, um, maybe inside the same location. You know, we have a we have a, a client that is a rural internet service provider that if there is a, a natural disaster or uh, an event that happens in one of their states, it's a lot more relevant than uh, one of the, you know, 20 some odd states that they don't uh, exist in, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the question is, you know, how does this impact our community, right? Like, do we need to show up for our community? And this particular nonprofit um, insisted on putting out a statement in the wake of the Pulse shooting. And I fought very, very hard as a member of the LGBTQ community to not put out that statement. They, the statement first and foremost had no real reference to like, it would be one thing if they were referencing the LGBTQ portion of their disabled community, but there mm. was no real reference about that. It actually ended up being kind of, um, more or less a grandstanding moment against gun violence, which like, you know, not a problem. Hey, let's fucking grandstand against gun violence. But this was also at a time where the mass shooting problem in this nation wasn't quite as frequent as it is now. Mm -hmm. um, and so it just ended up looking politicized. Mm -hmm. And the deaths were political. Of course they were political. We're a marginalized community that was attacked. Uh, but not so that the CEO of a nonprofit that doesn't really have much to do with our community could benefit from positive engagement, if I can say that mm -hmm. in a very diplomatic way. Um, Thoughts you know, and, and I think what's what's that? Thoughts and prayers. Right. Like it was just, you know, it was probably time to, to, to stop talking and to let organizations that support this community have the floor, take the microphone mm -hmm. for a moment. Um, you know, I, I also know though, like, like I've seen when, when, uh, the protests over the murder of George Floyd happened, you know, also in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of quarantine and everything. Um, you know, I was at Microsoft and we shut all comms down. I mean, and that was that was marketing, that was customer comms, that was everything shut down for the big day of the protest. But honestly, I think we kept them shut down for close to two weeks, wow. which for an organization like Microsoft is, uh, you know, no small feat. Do they need the brand awareness? Not necessarily. Um, but they put out a statement uh, that was spearheaded by their uh, employee resource group of, of Black employees. And that was the statement. And that was who was at the microphone and what needed to happen. At the same time, though, I remember when the Daily Harvest situation happened. What was that, like a year, two years ago? Time is meaningless. Remind me of it. <laughs> Daily Harvest. I don't know this thing. 
You don't know this thing. Okay, cool. So, so daily harvest is, uh, if you have ever received a piece of direct mail in your entire fucking life, you know what daily harvest is because they spend a whole lot of money on direct mail. Uh, the company that does the, the salads and smoothies and things in a cup. And then you just toss it into the blender or you toss it into a pot and you stir, 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 and then you've got a meal. So I got really into them a couple of years ago and like delicious shit, like legitimately delicious. The app, incredible user experience. I am somebody that hates single use apps and I looked forward to using this app to make my order every week. That's how fucking good it was. I'm okay? like scared. What's happening? That's so sexy. <laughs> Well, what <laughs> happened was there was one of their products that they had just released. It was some kind of lentil crumbles. And the crumbles were supposed to be almost like um like a meat substitute sort of a thing. And it was lentil and something else were the ingredients to make these meat substitute crumbles that you were supposed to be able to put into a pan and fry, 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 and then like toss in with veggies or noodles or something. And uh, they launched these. I never ordered them. This is going to become important in a moment. I never ordered them. <laughs> the people who did order them, however, uh, some shit went down. So something that we don't always think about when we think about things like HelloFresh or Daily Harvest or any of these other subscription food companies is that they are not regulated by mm-hmm. any real agency. They can source their ingredients from just about fucking anywhere. They have no real uh, quality assurance that goes into that. And this was something we learned after the Daily Harvest thing because suddenly multiple people nationwide who had consumed this Crumbles product not only got violently ill, but several of them had to have their gallbladders removed in emergency fucking surgery. Wow. Oh my God. For some lentil crumbles. For lentil crumbles. Because, and like, I just read an article. This was like two years ago. I just read an article in maybe Forbes Fast Company recently where they finally, they interviewed the CEO who is finally breaking their silence to the public on like they figured out what caused it. It was some kind of ingredient, blah, 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 whatever. But what pissed me off is that the company only communicated about the crumbles with the people who had purchased the crumbles. They pulled the products so that you couldn't Mm -hmm. purchase them anymore. But other than that, and then if you ordered any, you got you got noti- like you got a, a notice about it. But for the rest of us, it felt like damage control in a really mm-hmm. not transparent way. Mm-hmm. So I just gave three examples and talked for a long time. What do we think about those? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who's spending money on bean crumble? <laughs> <laughs> That was Kaylee's takeaway. Well, serves them right for spending money on bean crumbles. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I bet they're playing fucking sports too. We don't, we don't agree. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess my question from a comms perspective, because I haven't worked in that space, is like. Like, can you break down what happened there? Like, what do you think they were trying to do at Daily House? Like, they were trying to keep it siloed, right? But it backfired. And we see this a lot with, I mean, literally in marketing with Bud Light, right? We saw this wishy-washy pride thing this year. And it was like, 
you're mm-hmm. trying to play mm-hmm. everybody and you lost everybody, right? And it's almost like there might be some sort of version of that with regard to communications with at Daily Harvest, right? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I, yeah, again, like, I don't feel as qualified to talk about that just because it is coming from like a sort of private brand damage control situation. But something, Danielle, that you said earlier that stood out to me was like when you were describing your experience with that specific nonprofit and like the unsavory kind of, I don't know, um, response that the CEO gave. I think there's something to be said for like centering the people who are impacted by a crisis, um, which I guess kind of applies to the <laughs> the daily harvest thing, but in a pretty different way. Um, yeah, making sure that like they have a platform to you know address what's going on. And um, I think when I was talking earlier about companies, brands walking the walk, like mm-hmm. one way I think to do that is lifting up like grassroots organizations that are like working, you know really actively to address specific crises, whatever those crises may be. In the case of the repro space, like directing people to, I don't know, abortion funds, you know, opportunities to support people seeking care in places where they can't and just making sure that, you know, if there is a moment where a specific crisis is happening, making sure that like you're directing energy, money, attention to the organizations who are directly working to to challenge that. Mm-hmm. I'd like to think we're in a bright and sunny world where everyone promotes the proper organization. But in your experience with nonprofits, Leah, have you seen people doing that walk of like, for example, Roe v. Wade working with any nonprofits to promote essentially other nonprofits? Have you seen that Mm -hmm. kind of cohesiveness in your experience? I would say so. In the repro space in particular, I think just because like we were saying earlier on this call, it's just been this sort of constant fight now for decades. And even when Roe v. Wade was intact, it wasn't protecting the right to abortion care for everyone. Like it was really, there's this sort of slogan that's been going around um, since Roe was first sort of challenged, which is that Roe was the floor, not the ceiling, right? Like it, it protected abortion care access for certain people, but not for everyone. And there's so much more we can do to make sure that people have access to the care that they need. Um, And so I think in the repro space in particular, there's like a, I've observed anyway, a pretty major emphasis on partnership and collaboration. And I do see a lot of that kind of funneling attention to organizations that tackle a specific issue. Um, And I think like, like I said earlier, there are so many other kind of topics that are really adjacent to reproductive health and rights and justice. And um, I think even not necessarily in a crisis context, but like thinking about, you know, Pride Month, making sure that we're directing focus to our partners who, you know, primarily like work with members of the LGBTQ plus community versus, you know, trying to leverage the fact that this is happening, that people are paying attention to kind of get people to focus on what it is that we are doing. And so I don't know if this is something that's unique to the repro space. And again, like don't necessarily know how that plays out in like a marketing kind of more private industry context, but again, would welcome like any insight on that in particular too. I think it's just everyone with reproductive organs. We have our shit together. We know what we're doing. (laughs) We are all in this together. Um, That's probably the answer. (laughs) That's fair. That's fair. For sure. Yeah, I think one question about that too, though, is like, especially when we're talking about like more mission driven, you know, sorts of of causes, things like gun violence. Uh, I know that something that 
I have seen happen. Ooh, God, you know, people got like after 2020 in the middle of 2020, people got like crisis fatigued a bit, Mm -hmm. you know, you're Mm -hmm. dealing with the pandemic, uh, the murder of George Floyd uh, happened. Um, you know, you've got then, more gun violence happening and, and, and just like shitty assaults from people who refuse to wear masks. And like, there was just, there was something fucking new every day. And I remember encountering marketers who like, you know, there was, a, I think it was after the shooting in Buffalo. And like, I posted in a marketing group, like, Hey, everyone, just a reminder, you probably want to shut off your social and your ads because this happened. And for the first time, I was normally the person that was that reminder for marketing groups. For the first time ever, I started getting pushback from people that mm-hmm. were like, Jesus, like if we start fucking shutting this stuff off, we're going to have to fucking keep it shut off every day. Like, where do you feel like there's the balance when mm-hmm. this happens so often? Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, I do think there's also kind of a desire for normalcy too, right? Like it's, I don't know what the answer is, but there's, it's obviously there's this impulse to respond to the craziness of the world and like acknowledge that. Um, But I think too, there's something to be said for like trying to maintain a sense of normalcy in the midst of all of the chaos that's always happening. And so again, like, I don't, I don't know what the, what the proper balance is to strike. And I think it's really circumstantial, but overall, like, yeah, I mean, it's necessary to find it. Um, and I think, yeah, it's just contingent upon each brand's sort of unique situation. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think it even circles back to the original thing you said, which is like, well, and I'm going to use marketer speak, obviously, but who is your audience? Mm-hmm. Or in in other cases, who are you serving, right? Or do you have groups within your organization that want to speak on this that you feel like would add benefit to the conversation and wouldn't? take away from somebody else's voice, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm really curious. I know there's, especially with Roe v. Wade and you being, um, having experience in the reproductive space, like what changes, like, did you see a clear de- delineation between like how you were doing things before the decision and how things were after? Like, did you have to were you already planning for this probably happening or did it happen? Then you're like, pivot, 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 180. Let's do this. Let's focus our um, efforts on, you know, doing pill delivery. I think that's one thing that I noticed come out from everything. I was like, oh, that's a new thing that I'm getting ads for marketing wise. Um, So I'd be really, really curious about it. Honestly, a, what that felt like. um, Cause I know it felt awful. Mm as a human being getting the news and then mm. be what you saw happen around you. Totally. Yeah. I, yes, I think it was, I mean, we were lucky in quotation marks to have had that sort of um, SCOTUS opinion leak about a month in advance. Like that kind of gave us an opportunity to prepare for what was happening. But also obviously that it, it felt horrible for a longer amount of time. Like we had that extra month to have to grapple with, you know, the impending reality of what was about to go down. And it also involved a lot of kind of strategizing around, like, even though it was, it felt very certain, um, strategizing around how to respond in case we experienced a different outcome. And I think that's another thing that happens a lot with comms is kind of like doubling up on, you know, how we are going to respond to a given moment, um, depending on 
what ends up happening if you know you're lucky enough to have that sort of prep time so in a way it it felt a little bit more manageable than maybe it could have but yeah like you're saying it was a terrible moment that just sort of lasted i would say like through all of 2022 like it really kicked off in june when everything was sort of officialized and i think one thing that may have been a little bit different but maybe it was just an extension of kind of the way that we tend to do things is to use that as an opportunity to dispel like misinformation and disinformation, like obviously abortion and reproductive healthcare in general is something that there's a lot of both of those things floating around all the time and um, kind of an opportunity to educate. And so, yeah, I think we really kind of double down on, on that in particular, but yeah, it just was, it was pretty terrible. Sure. I, yeah, I, I, I actually, Alan, did you have a question? No, no, it wasn't a question. It was, I was just going to say that I remember seeing a lot of education now, now that you said that a lot of education come out Mm -hmm. and I actually did learn a lot about, you know, sometimes it would be from states that weren't relevant to me, but it would be like in Oregon, actually, here's where you can go or you don't have a trade law here, et cetera. And I, I now Mm -hmm. in retrospect, yeah, I see that that was the um, strategy, I guess. And that's cool. Yeah. In the immediate aftermath, I just want to kind of revisit like the the approach of lifting up grassroots organizations because like it felt so urgent and people, you know, needed access to care so urgently um, and didn't necessarily know like what the situation in their state was like there was just a lot of uncertainty. And so I, I did see a lot like an extra amount of that kind of redirecting people to like immediate boots on the ground services and resources that they could take advantage of. It felt like, again, like a really, really dark moment and everyone was like really horrified. But at the same time, it was heartening to see kind of how collectively people were sort of coming together to uplift each other's work and make sure that people were getting where they needed to go. Um, my question is is really uh, it's just a slight pivot from that. It's it's along the same lines though, you know, especially working inside of like mission driven like social justice sorts of space and what with the quote unquote culture wars that we keep hearing mm. about and and just the the growing uh, division inside of the the states at least. It feels like things are happening in in social spheres much faster. Change is happening much faster. Um, we're growing towards acceptance, especially with like Gen Z being so much more adept at uh cultural adaptation Mm. than the rest of us are things are happening faster and when things happen faster people who are not prepared for the the happening they tend to pull back right and so then they go on the defensive and we see that happen and we see progress and then we see regression and i have to wonder that like in in a time where change is happening so much faster and with that growing division is, does it behoove comms teams or, or teams doing um, any kind of communication or marketing to sort of have a message for each possibility? Mm-hmm. Like in marketing, we educate our clients that if when you're building like a workflow of a campaign, for instance, you don't just build what you want to happen. You have to build for all possible decisions that a user could make. So yes, you want them to fill out the form, but what happens if they don't fill out the form? Then what happens? They just like fall off the face of the earth. So you're planning for all possible options. And it feels a little bit like 
you're running for president and you don't know if you're going to win or not. So you plan uh, an acceptance and a concession speech, right? And you don't know which one you're going to use. Do you find Mm -hmm. teams doing that in communications? Do you feel like it's beneficial? Like, can you talk to that a little bit? Yeah, definitely. I do see that a lot in communications. And I think it's kind of a fundamental tenet of communications, like you're saying, to just be prepared for any outcome. I mean, even if, you know, you're quite certain, like how something's going to go, it's a lot better to have something on hand than to have to scramble and address it in in real time. Um, I think this also kind of speaks to that same idea of sort of figuring out whether how to respond to a crisis, whether a response to a crisis is something that falls within your wheelhouse. Like if you work for an organization that, you know, kind of touches multiple fields or straddles like different issues, like making sure that you have something prepared to respond if something along each of those lines happens, I think makes sense. But, you know, that also kind of speaks to the authenticity piece, like. I think it only really works if if it applies to what you do and what your mission is as an organization. Sure. Cool. Thank you. Something that I'm really interested in is how, you know, I, I brought up that like change is happening much faster. Mm-hmm. You know, both Alan and Kaylee have brought up big things that have happened, more and more crises. They're more consistent you've spent so much of your career inside of this communication space, you know, that, that you've mentioned really revolves around like messaging and education and getting the message out there in a way that is uh, digestible and easy to understand and easy to remember and easy to disseminate. Hmm. How do you feel like your role or the role of communications or even just the way that we do communications in these spaces has changed. Shit, we'll even go like, because, you know, time is meaningless and everything happens faster. We'll go like pre-pandemic versus post-pandemic. Yeah, that's a super good question. I do feel like the pandemic created a sense of urgency that maybe didn't exist in the same way beforehand, um, which I think is kind of underpinning um, the impetus to respond to everything, like not just the pandemic, but I think 2020 in general, like you were saying earlier, there was so much going on all at once and compounding in such a crazy way. People were inside all the time, plugged in constantly. And so I think that sense of urgency is kind of palpable. Uh, I think my experience in the past year or so, actually, that's not true at all because of my experience with the post-row kind of chaos. But um, I think in general, like I've seen that cool down a little bit. But yeah, I mean, I guess that's sort of the, the main thing that stands out. I'd be curious to hear from you three as well, if you've noticed any sort of shift, you know, pre-pandemic to, to now. Oh, marketing hasn't changed at all. No. I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like with the pandemic, and this isn't even in marketing, it's like society. It's like dealing with people. Mm-hmm. Everyone feels like something is being is not being told to them. I feel like that's kind of a constant now. And everyone's Definitely. at like a level 12 of ready to fight. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like I'm sure some things that I hear are comms things. And even myself, I'm like, eh, bullshit. Yeah, that's bullshit. Like whatever they're saying, like they worked on it for a week and like, it's not, it's not Mm -hmm. authentic. It's you worked on it for a week. There's an angle. Yeah. There's an angle. You worked on it for a long time. You have three different options and this is the one you chose, right? right? Um, So that's really interesting, Mm -hmm. Kaylee, because as a human being, not just a marketer adjacent person, like that's a response 
I have, you know? Yeah, because we went from, like, this, we were, like, back in the, like, 1940s, we're America, we're doing this together, and then as soon as it went one month longer than we all thought, it was, like, (laughs) none of us, what are you talking about? This is supposed to be gone, I don't have to wear anything, masks are actually useless, like, all these, and everyone's now looking into, like, the vaccines, obviously that created a whole nother divide, and it's just, it's honestly everything is crisis you've got you've got some really like compelling points there too kaylee when you think about the fact that like the government so badly fucking fumbled communications like like i think that the american Mm. people could have been more forgiving if we had let scientists say science is not the knowledge of everything. Sometimes it is the discovery of things in real time. And scientists, we're just like you right now, except for we have a degree. And so like, we're, we're learning and we're learning as fast as we can, but we need you to be patient with us as opposed to getting some of this information like withheld from us because it just fosters feelings of mistrust. It it reminds me of like old West Wing episodes where there was like, like two cows tested in on a ranch in Omaha for mad cow. Do we tell the American people or do we mm. wait to find out more? And if it gets out that we knew and we said nothing right away, then there's no trust that's there. And I feel like we kind of watched that happen in real time, which I would imagine like it feels like that sows the distrust And then there's no trust of anybody. So now we're all on the defensive and we're all like not trusting. So now we're fighting, like you said, at a level Mm -hmm. level 12 in terms of fighting back, which makes me laugh because like literally yesterday I was on like Facebook or LinkedIn or something. And there was this ad that I got from, uh, it was a video. I don't know if y'all have seen this. Governor Jared Polis of Colorado and Governor whatever the fuck his name is uh, of Utah. He's a Republican governor. Governor Jared Polis is a Democratic governor. And they're sitting there having a meal and talking about like uncomfortable conversations at the dinner table and how like maybe your MAGA uncle is saying something terrible or maybe your woke teenager is saying something terrible or you know maybe we can disagree without believing that everybody's actively trying to overthrow the government and the entire conversation was about like the whole premise of this was a campaign to disagree better. And all I wanted to do was go like, yeah, but some of you were trying to overthrow the government, okay? Like, I want to be very clear about this. And then, like, there was also, I'm like, why are you eating Thanksgiving dinner? It is fucking July. And I'm like, maybe I'm who they're talking to. I don't know. Like, disagree. I don't know. Better, Danielle. (laughs) Well, and I was thinking, um, Leah, when you were talking about, like, the urgency, too, I was like, well, when I remember hearing about COVID-19 to when things got locked down, it's like it almost felt like another, just another Mm -hmm. news headline and then all of a sudden mm-hmm. it was like, oh, this is deeply not just impacting impacting my life, but the entire world and right now. And so I, and this is, I'm just, I'm not anybody, but like I'm, I had this thought <laughs> where I was like, well, that mindset, how could that not have infiltrated things moving forward? Like, how could that not have been like, oh, now everything I hear 
is pretty fucking urgent because what if it means I'm mm-hmm. locked in my house for months and months and months and maybe I wow. should filter this really? through um, seven filters and maybe people are lying and like, yeah, I mean, I don't even know if we can truly understand what that did to our brains on so many levels, mm-hmm. you know? Leah, I was just going to ask, like, in terms of the repro comms, have you seen maybe a rise in distrust with that as well? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think they're like, so I work in sort of the the repro research space. Mm-hmm. I do comms for a research organization. And I think that there's uh, been an increased emphasis on kind of sharing, like, towing the line between, like, having a perspective on of course like everybody should have access to care that's like a no-brainer um but also just trying to provide access to information in kind of an unbiased way and just sort of like I think that in and of itself is indicative of like trying to depoliticize to some extent content um specifically on social media and just like putting the facts out there and making sure that you know it's comprehensive and uh, covers all the necessary bases. Like, I mean, I think that there's always been a certain amount of distrust from like antis in the repro space. And mm-hmm. I don't know that that's, I don't know if that's growing or like seeding at all. Um, but that's just sort of always like such a powerful force. And the majority of the people that we're reaching are kind of already belong to the reproductive health space and are invested. And yeah, so I think there I'm seeing a little bit less distrust, even if some of our approaches are kind of trying to quell that by just making, you know, accurate information accessible and um, available yeah. to people. Just being like, these are facts. I'm just handing you these. Mm-hmm. Let's take what exactly. you will. Yes. You guys, do you guys talk a lot about how, like, how to reach people who don't agree? You know, like, do you, or are you largely trying to disseminate information to people who need resources or por que no los dos? Mm-hmm. I love porquino los dos in this context, but in general, it's it's the latter. It's just in most contexts. But like, yeah, I think that there's a certain sense of there's no point really in trying to engage people who disagree, which is not to say that that can't be done on a personal level. Thank you, Jared Polis, for like reassuring us of that. But like in the larger. I look, I don't know if you reassured us of anything. <laughs> it's fucking Let's July. Be- there's no reason for fucking pumpkin pie to be a- anywhere on a table. So North Dakota right now. So Why is there pumpkin pie? Hold on, is all I'm saying is. <laughs> Sorry. Just so silly. No. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that, yeah, there's just kind of a general sense that engaging in a more serious way or like in a more like systematic way is pretty fruitless. And it, it just feels a lot more productive um, to focus on the people who are seeking care and, you know, want that information. That's pretty similar to marketing, right? We Yeah, I was just going to say that. Right. Like that you have to get really targeted about your audience, right? Like, like, it's funny because, you know, we talk in, um, in our, our small business accelerator and even like talking to, we were talking to a a friend of mine today about a, a future podcast episode 
the idea of scarcity that ends up being really pervasive mm. um, in a lot of different categories. But like, you know, she was talking about like, and, you know, we'll, we'll have a future episode about this, like people apply to too many jobs instead of getting really targeted with the ones that they want. We think about like, you know, we're launching a new service for small businesses in our organization coming up soon. And at first we were like, it's just all small businesses. And now we're realizing like, no, actually we have a pretty specific idea mm. of who it is that we want to reach. Do we want to reach everyone? Sure. But where is our time best spent? And like, even on a mid-market and enterprise level, you know, with our target accounts and the companies that we're trying to work with, we got to sit down, I think, you know, last December and go, we are in the prized and fortunate position to say, no, fuck you. We don't want to work for like a, a massive conglomerate organization that goes against our values and beliefs. Like we want to mm -hmm. seek out companies that align with our values and our, our passions. So knowing who you target, I mean, that, that does, it makes sense. Like why spend time trying to convince people when time is a finite resource and you can either spend it convincing people or you can spend it, you know, building up your, your reinforcements. Right. Yeah, exactly. I'm like curious, like as people, all of us here, like, do you all feel like people's minds can change or they can be convinced mm -hmm. of things? Right. Like, cause like we're like, no, it's not worth your time. And maybe this is a personal versus mm -hmm. professional world. Like maybe this is a gap there, but I started thinking, I was like, do I believe that minds can be changed? Yes. Truly? Do I, I don't actually know. So I'd be curious how you all feel. I think that also may be a question to frame in the pre COVID post COVID way. Like I think yeah. any stories that I've heard, like anecdotally of people successfully changing other people's minds about fundamental like questions like these, um, almost all happened before COVID. Like, I don't think that means that people can't change their minds now or like maybe the optimist in me wants to believe that. Um, but it, I feel like as a result of everything we discussed earlier, the urgency, the distrust, et cetera, et cetera. I think it, it's probably much harder to reach people in that way um, successfully. Yeah, I think I can't remember if we've talked about it on the podcast or if I just talk about this in real life so much, but like, <laughs> it's like the <laughs> shutdown. You already have social media as such an echo chamber. And then after the shutdown, your echo chamber became truth. And like you're saying, since COVID, it's so hard to get people to change their opinions, even, and I am the kind of person that will be, I will talk you into circles until I hear you go, yeah, well, I don't know about that. That's like my favorite thing to hear. Cause I go, you're thinking of something. I don't right. think you're changing your mind at all, but like something happened in there where your brain went, wait, wait. But no, I don't think it can happen unless you're like dedicating your life to it. <laughs> I I mean, I have a ton of, of thoughts on this and have gone back and forth over the years because while I think it is a really, really interesting to the to thing to posit about like pre versus <laughs> thing to posit with pre versus 
post COVID, um, you know, I know that like the rise of social media really, you know, Mm -hmm. lent itself well to this question, even pre COVID a decade ago, I had people like, cause I got, I, I, became not a big deal, pretty well known for picking a lot of fights on Facebook. Legendary. Please hold your applause. Um, <laughs> to the point where I literally had to get off of Facebook. Like I am, I post like once every two weeks now. I had uh, to get Seamus sh- was- to delete next door because he, he took one <laughs> comment and he started going off on an, on an old lady about this woman was like, well, then get out of Florida. And he's like, we're trying. We are trying to that's, get out of the state. That's incredible. And see, that's the thing is like, like Tyler knows, like, cause I, I get into moods where it's just like, I just like, I need to fight somebody online, I guess. <laughs> and like, he knows that if I'm like furiously typing and I, and he'll be like, Hey babe, what's up? And I'm like, nothing. And he's like, who are you fighting with? And I'm like, nobody, shut up. Like, <laughs> you soon. And like, <laughs> now I try to, I stay off of Facebook and I try to save my, my, you know, aggressive instigation moods for reality dating show Reddit. Yeah. Or Vanderpump Rules Reddit. <laughs> and so anyhow, beyond that, um, I have always believed that people actually, they can change their minds. They, they do change their minds. And I think I looked at myself and I go, well, Danielle, like, you've changed a lot mm-hmm. over mm-hmm. the course of your life. And when presented with new information, you may bristle at it immediately, but you go in, you research, you, you take time to think about a thing. And then you decide on like, I was called a, a confrontational learner in 10th grade. And I was like, what the fuck does that mean? And like, <laughs> you know, I, it's, it's generally having to engage with information. Not everybody is that kind of learner. I also, despite the fact that I believe that you can change your mind and that people can change their minds, even in social media arguments, I am in a massive defense of the echo chamber. I think the echo chamber got a lot of, it got unfairly maligned over the course of the last few years. And for me, for other marginalized communities, they can be a really safe place. Like the biggest reason that I like threads it's not because I needed a new fucking social platform. It's because what I see on threads is all the people I follow on Instagram who I already like and they have happy things that I like seeing mm-hmm. memes and photos and fun videos. And then I follow them all on, on this new Twitter like thing and they're funny too. This is so great. And like, that's a good place to go and recharge because I'm a big believer in spoon theory if I'm completely out of fucking spoons, no, I'm not changing my fucking mind. I need to go mm-hmm. back to my echo chamber and recharge because, and, and I think that this fits really nicely with the comms thing. We are at content fucking capacity, y'all. Everything's and, content. Yeah. Oh my God. And, and then we just keep making more and we just keep making more yeah. channels on which to make more. And then we're all expected to make more, but even more than the expectation to make more, because not all of us are expected to make more. We're all expected to consume more yeah. though. Mm-hmm. And I was not made to consume this much content. Mm-hmm. I beat myself up over not reading as many books as I used to. Oh my gosh, same. But maybe it's because I read words on a screen every fucking day, all fucking day long. So like, 
yes, I believe we can change our minds. Yes, I believe the echo chamber is a good thing. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine comms being a lot fucking harder when you have to compete. Like you're you're trying to educate and you're competing with an algorithm and every other fucking person out there making content. 100%. But to your point about the echo chamber, I mean, at least in my experience with the repro space, like I was saying before, it's such a like collaborative kind of partner based like space. And so if you're on like repro social media, um I think everything you're describing doesn't feel quite as intense. It's like people are kind of lifting other organizations are lifting other organizations up. You know, people are lifting each other up. Like it just feels a lot more generative and warm, like you said, and inviting. And I think that that definitely makes like trying to navigate those challenges so much easier. I think too, like, you know, social media platforms like to talk about how they made the world smaller and that was a really good thing, mm-hmm. which I get. And and as we've said before on this pod, there is no hard and fast, like it's either good or it's bad. There's there's good and bad components there's too. There's a lot. Mm-hmm. It's, we exist in the gray, right? But it did make the world smaller in really negative ways. You know, one, which I think is a topic for another day, but the parasocial relationship is very fucked up now. And we treat a lot of creators, performers, people as brands, as like commodities that we Mm. pay for to do what we want them to do, first and foremost. But I think also it started to make us believe that our social networks, because we do have access to everyone, it made us believe that we, we see everyone. And if we don't see it, then it's not real. I remember this when Hillary lost the election in 2016. And so many people were like, Like I saw people who were like, well, everybody I know voted for Hillary or you had Trump supporters who were like, Mm. I don't know a single person who voted for Hillary Clinton. And therefore, those numbers are made up Mm. because I don't know anybody who did. We started believing that that our online network and our online persona was representative of the whole ass world. I don't know anyone who's gotten covid like, I don't, I don't know anybody who died from COVID, but like, people did. So it's, you know, I, I think I think we all need that reminder every so often to go out and touch grass. Like, you know, your your highlights real isn't your highlights real. Like, wow. that's the, yeah. You, no, it's content. Okay. Do you, no, do you I, do a marketing thing? Have you ever... No, I just follow lots of influencers <laughs> and so that are just trying to make bodies normal again. They're all thin, but like they're just trying to make bodies normal again. Uh, well, but yeah, I think that's part of it too. And that's what I was going to say when I was thinking about, because I was like, people I know have changed their minds in really big ways. And But I was thinking about all the touch points they had, to use a marketing term, in order to get to that space. And honestly, one of the biggest mm-hmm. touch points was their relationship to me, right? Like, I'm thinking specifically, like, <laughs> no, I didn't mean it like that. Like, <laughs> what is this podcast become? <laughs> no, I'm more, I meant like one-on-one relationship. 
Owen, whose opinions are you changing and whatnot with your magic? The biggest reason that anybody I know has progressed in life, the one common denominator is me. That was the most Sagittarius thing I think I've ever fucking heard. Oh my god. How do I move forward with this? In what context do they have to know you that they changed? No, I'm sorry. Okay, listen. I meant like, <laughs> I meant like a like a personal relationship, right? It was like a one on one. It's it's not me. Uh, I'm not. <laughs> I'm dying. I'm not the like god ex of like <laughs> changing people's minds. But no, I, the final touch point was like wanting to be in relationship. It was touching grass. Just touching grass. Maybe yeah. they read stuff on the internet. Maybe they heard lots of different opinions. Maybe they also heard opinions from friends and family, but then they love a trans person. And they're like, I can't, I can't say that I don't think this person should live their best life. So I yeah. guess my mind's changed, right? So, yeah. Yeah, I think that's huge. And I think, again, it comes down to the shutdown of people not experiencing hum- humans for a long period of time where you were like I'm growing some really intense thoughts right now and if you're not dealing day to day with trans people black people just people with uteruses for that matter like with repo rights and you're like why is everyone freaking out over Roe v. Wade that was one of the drunkest I have gotten after that overturned but like you have it's when you take away that human experience, it's just your own little world is what it is. I remember after even Biden was elected, people saying, like, I don't see anything positive about Joe Biden on Facebook. And it was the only I am not a commenter, but I genuinely was commenting. That's how this works. That's how this right. works. That's yeah. how social media works. If you right. don't like Joe Biden, they're not going to give you pro Biden right. stuff. Right. Well, and I think it's interesting to think about it in that communications context, too, because the algorithm governs everything that we see. You know, Mm -hmm. we had an episode, one of our earliest episodes was about how even our search engine results are governed based on an algorithm Mm -hmm. that depends entirely on what we already engage with and who can say the most authoritative keywordy things in, you know, a certain space and time. And then what other people in our our network in our vicinity are also clicking on. Just about all of our information is filtered through this algorithm. So it is just a constant echo chamber in a lot of ways. How, I mean, how do you find that when you need to reach an audience with messaging, um, you know, I, I can't help but think of like, like we foster dogs and our dog rescue when we do adoption events they post about it and they always get a ton of engagement but i don't know if they realize that the vast majority of their engagement is not from people who are interested in adopting these dogs Mm -hmm. it's from people who just like dogs Hmm. and so like you know how do you make sure that your your message is getting to your audience 
Yeah, it's a great question. It depends a lot on the platform and understanding kind of how each one works. It has required a lot of like experimenting with hashtags, for example, or I mean, I think we're kind of emerging on TikTok right now and kind of learning the ins and outs of that. And abortion is flagged as like a taboo topic and you know so there's a lot of workarounds too right like spelling it a certain way and in the captioning like it it really just comes down to learning the platforms you're trying to reach people on and trying to adapt along with them which I I know is not a super specific example Um, and often we aren't necessarily reaching the people that we're trying to but um, I guess it's just a, a matter of staying nimble and like up to speed about how things are changing because and they constantly are I always feel like as soon as I sort of get the hang of like some of these these updates to algorithms across channels like everything is completely different and I have to do it all over again so sure yeah sure I think that honestly sort of leads us to uh, a good place to to talk about action items you know um our our audience is uh, probably equal parts people who work inside of the uh, marketing you know business comm space and then people who very much don't they just like Alan they're the only reason <laughs> that any of them have evolved in life and so um, because of that we generally tend to like uh or to ask our our guests to give us some action items for uh for the pot for our audience um both the people who might work inside of these spaces or adjacent to these spaces and people who don't know the first thing about marketing they just know alan (laughs) (laughs) i can't even look at you like i looked at you earlier during a serious moment and i almost started laughing again (laughs) Sorry. Go ahead, Liam. Such a range of of audiences. Um, I think, well, the first one, the first suggestion is not comms or marketing specific, but I'm going to say it anyway for anybody who wants to support access to reproductive health, especially right now, um, to find your local abortion clinic and send them some money because a lot of people are having to travel cross state lines. Um, Someone earlier was talking about like, you know, these care deserts that exist. People don't have access to a clinic or they can't like order pills by mail. So um, find your local abortion fund and give them some dough. Um, And then second, which is more comms and marketing related would be to, you know, if, if your organization like wants to engage more in discourse about specific issues as crises emerge, um, I might recommend following organizations that are devoted to working in those spaces, specifically grassroots organizations, and following their lead, lifting them up, using those moments as an opportunity to, again, direct people's attention, money, energy, etc., social media platform, whatever it is, to to those orgs and to take a leaf out of their book. Like, um, I think that's going to be the best way to figure out how and if, um, you know, your brand should respond to a given crisis moment or issue. I think that's, that's really good in the way of like, especially if you feel tempted, or if you feel like your organization, a small businesses, especially, or businesses with smaller departments that might have a little bit more say in this. Uh, mm. If you feel like you really need to speak up, because like, maybe it impacted 
not even impacted, maybe it just weighed on you personally, like this was really terrible, uh, a good place to start would be like, hey, am I potentially by putting out this statement or by saying something here, am I potentially centering myself, centering our business? Am I potentially distracting from the victims? Am I potentially... Mm leveraging a crisis to my own benefit or to my business's benefit or gain, even if it's not financial gain, but like engagement gain, Mm -hmm. like don't engagement bait. Like I'm reading this tremendous book about um, MLMs right now from a woman who was very, very high to be toppy in one of them. And she talks about like, the way that some of these distributors would leverage really terrible, awful crises into sales. You know, you don't mm-hmm. have a nine eleven or a Memorial Day sale. You don't have yeah. uh, a sale where, you know, 20% of your proceeds are going to go to X, Y, or Z. Just make the donation. Make the donation mm-hmm. sans sale. Don't attach it to somebody else doing the financial giving if it really means something to you. And, you know, as Leah said, like uplifting those voices who are impacted by it. Uh, sometimes the the best way to hold a microphone is to hold it in front of somebody else. Hmm. I just came up with that. That's not really good. I don't think so. That is really good. Leah, real quick, uh, for our any of our listeners who might not understand what it means, could you just specify what a grassroots uh, organization would be in comparison to maybe something that everyone knows the name of? Sure. Yeah. I mean, my understanding of a grassroots organization is often a smaller scale organization, sort of working more boots on the ground, providing direct services to people who are seeking those services um, versus maybe like a larger scale organization or institution that also works within that space, but isn't able to address um, people's needs in, in the same direct way. That was like such a wordy response. No, perfect. Uh, so like a, like a, a local uh, abortion provider or, uh, you know, reproductive clinic versus a schmanschmerenthood. Precisely. Yep, or a Schmoozin Schmoman Foundation. Schmoozin Schmoman. <laughs> that was you forgot your Schmoozin Schmoozin Foundation. God, you guys, I bet they don't know who we're talking about. I'm so, tiptoeing because like, I used to work for them. <laughs> Oh, that's me I'm like, We are such good spies. Um, <laughs> so aces, CIA, we'll call you back. Um, oh my gosh, the CIA! Do you remember the CIA? Didn't they do a Pride post that was like the most hilarious? It was, yeah, yes. yeah. It yes, was, it was uh, real. I want. It, it was not a joke. It was real. No, it no. So um, it was a lot. It was a lot. <laughs> the comment section is what was like so. Cool. Oh yeah. Did you see? Yeah. Leah? No. I have no idea. I have not seen this, but I you. really want to. Please. It's important communication. I mean, so. Yeah, it's important. <laughs> right. Right. It's work stuff. It's a marketing. It's, it's thing. a marketing thing. Yeah. 
<laughs> um, last but not least, Leah, uh, one of the things that we like for our guests to do at the end of a pod, uh, you know, one of the reasons that we uh, have this podcast is to try and uh, humanize um, lots of things, especially things like marketing, business. Uh, we feel like kind of harkening back to one of our earlier points. Uh, you know, everybody's at 12. They want to fight all the time. Everybody wants to be right. And in our belief, uh, we believe that people are more likely to be okay with being wrong if everybody's allowed to be mm. wrong sometimes. So that's one of the reasons that we ask our guests to uh, tell us when they were wrong and uh, <laughs> tell us about like your biggest mistake. Uh, we like to say at work uh, just because, you know, uh, we try to connect it to business somehow on this podcast, but like, especially in, in a, a branding or a comms context, like what's a, what's a real big mistake you can think of that you've made? Please tell us. Oh my gosh. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> so fun. Uh, I I think prob this isn't again necessarily comms or marketing branding specific, but um, I think is speaks a little bit more to sort of the way that nonprofits historically have worked um, and probably beyond. But um, early on in my career, I well I, some background. I studied English in undergrad. I really wanted to go into publishing, and I was pretty much told like. By everybody I consulted about this decision that like in order to do that I'd have to make all these crazy sacrifices like I'd have to move to New York City and apply to a big six or a big five and you know or maybe a smaller press but in any case it was going to be so competitive and I'd probably be making 40k max I'd have to live in a shoebox whatever um, and so I fully subscribed to this narrative to this idea um, and this is bringing me back to what I think, Danielle, you were saying about sort of the scarcity mindset that was just so, so integral to like the the publishing world and like the literary. I ended up in sort of a literary organization um, that was also a nonprofit and that operated in a really different way than that traditional path to publishing, but like very much embodied that scarcity mindset, which made sense because it was like criminally underfunded. Um, nevertheless, I like completely embodied that perspective and um, ended up working really closely with a lot of junior staff, a lot of interns who like were not paid and were working way too much and contributing like so much value to the org and just like weren't being compensated for that. And yet I like pretty actively like perpetuated that cycle. And only until only after like I left that setting did I fully realize like how wrong that was and um I think the more that I've sort of learned about like um just capitalism in general and sort of how it is rooted in exploitation and in all of these different ways like I that that's something that's really sort of stuck with me and I, I mean I, I don't know if it really is a mistake per se but it was a really significant learning moment like I will never uh work with it. just like you were saying too that you are now in a position where you can you can still select who you collaborate with based on how much they align with your values and you know I feel like very strongly about not participating in that yeah. cycle um never like working for an organization that does that like never um actively engaging with that kind of approach ever again no, I think that's that's something that I believe we all kind of had to learn. Yeah. And well, and you know, I, I I like to think that we're we're trying to do things differently here at Broad. Um, you know, at the same time, I think we all carry significant baggage and workplace trauma from organizations mm -hmm. that that did mm -hmm. that. And you know, 
uh, that's that's a lot to to try and like dismantle in ourselves. So I think it's a, a constant learning experience, and I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah, thanks for sharing. That's today's episode. Thank you for listening in. We hope you learned something new, made you think about something, or that you just enjoyed us talking at you on your daily commute. Make sure to hit the subscribe button if you're watching us on YouTube. Subscribe wherever you're listening to today's episode. Like us on Instagram and TikTok at Target Snarket for our highlights from our episode and memes and lots of fun. Um, make sure to tell us in the comments a good example of a crisis communication. And otherwise, okay, bye. Thanks for tuning in to Target Snarket, a weekly podcast brought to you by Broad Digital Consulting. Our podcast is hosted by Danielle Bilbrook, Kaylee Myers, and Alan Connolly, and produced by Margot Gill. You can always learn more about Broad Digital Consulting on our website, broad.digital. That's B-R-O-A-D dot digital. Or you can find us on social media using the handle at Target Snarket. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode. And if you're feeling so inclined, we'd love for you to review our pod if you like what you're hearing. 